Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thielen Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Lucy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Lovely spring day. How are you, Thea? Yeah, I'm well. I've been reading a piece in this week's paper. That's that's good. That's kind of your job. <laughs> it is my job. Particular it piece? Is my job. <laughs> yes, um, I've more or less just come out of it, so it's that's probably why I'm struggling to put words in front of each other. Um, I don't know whether it's because we're sort of so much more aware of death at the moment. You know, so much of it is brought to our attention, but the death of the poet Adam Zagajewski in late March completely passed me by. And so we have this nice piece this week by his longtime translator, Claire Kavanagh, Mm. which, as you'd expect, engages closely with his poetry and with his character too, because obviously she she knew him well. Um, So that's what I've been reading. I mean, he's, he's a poet who wrote so beautifully and acutely about loss and losing people specifically. So there's a nice circularity to having this piece now by Kavanagh doing precisely that for him. Yeah, it is. It is. It's lovely because it talks about the relationship and and the excitement of getting a new poem by him in her in her inbox translate and how she sort of took it for granted and now she thinks, oh my gosh, I was getting, I was the first, you know, person to 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 see that and to bring it into English. And there's also some lovely touches when there's one time she tells him or he's somebody slagging him off on some sort of forum and saying that he's very unsmiling and he never laughs and she wrote something back and then she tells him about this and he laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs <laughs> of the idea so that's that's and there's and there's three wonderful poems that yeah she's translated for us with it as well that thing as well the anecdote about her correcting someone and saying actually he has a great sense of humor and then he, he laughs when she tells a story that's sort of germane as well because the piece is about remembering him and the poetry as he actually was about sort of setting the record straight isn't it specifically correcting the general view of him in Poland which is where he was from Mm. um Kavanagh says that he tends to be seen as these are her words the haughty advocate of high style and high culture cliches that dispense with actually seeing the person or reading the poems 
that provide an effective means of dismissing his international acclaim. He writes for the West, he writes for translation, his critics have claimed, and she says, nonsense, uh, all of it. The three poems that we have got translated, there is a bit of high culture, there's also a bit of, of real specificity in there, and actually the extraordinary thing about them is they're so direct. Exactly, they're so direct and and as Kavanagh says, it's it's that thing of knowing now that they're the final poems, they're the final poems that she received from him. And that inevitably changes the way that you you read them. Mm. But I feel we shouldn't say any more now. We should just let people go. Uh, we recommend indeed that people do go um, and read this piece, which will be on the website. Yeah, it will. And especially the poems at the end of it. I, I love the first one, The Calling of St. Matthew. I just, I thought that was terrific. Yeah, they're all beautiful. Um, any other business before we move on with the show, Lucy? Literary business, yes. Um, this week um, to look out for is the booksellers, the British Book Awards, otherwise known as the Nibbies. And they are being announced on Thursday, all the winners of all the categories. And we are, in fact, um, partnering with them for the fiction debut category. There's a lot of uh, very good books on the list. Well, on all of the lists, unsurprisingly. But on that <laughs> list, there's some very strong stuff. We hope so. Um, now, coming up on this week's show. It's been more than a year, writes Maria Margaronis, since our theatres closed their doors, shutting down that intimate space where we dream and think with strangers in the dark and putting many thousands of livelihoods at risk. We'll look at how one theatre, London's Royal Court, has responded by reinventing itself as a living newspaper. And we'll look at a library of the world's literature built in a place that anyone with internet access can reach. Anyone that is, except the censors. First, let's turn to the life and work of Angela Thurkle, a 20th century writer of relentless self-belief, whose work, 30-odd books, mostly novels, provides much readerly pleasure and some surprising moments of challenge. These are the words of Dinah Birch, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Cultural Engagement and Professor of English Literature at the University of Liverpool, who joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Dinah. Thanks for coming on. Hello. Um, I'm not sure how well known Angela Thurkle is really uh, to our listeners. Her name and books don't come up very often, I don't think. I think she's much less well known than she used to be. Um, she was enormously popular, um, especially in the 1930s and during the Second World War. She has retained readers. She's never disappeared from view. Um, she has many readers in America um, and in the UK. And it's worth mentioning that many of her best books, and there are many books, are currently in print. They're in Virago Modern Classics. They are very affordable. So anyone who wants to follow up their reading and give Angela Thurkle a try, there she is. But you're absolutely right, Thea. She's not especially well known. Her name, I think, most often these days comes up in the context of her early life, um, she was the granddaughter of um, Burn Jones, the Victorian late Victorian painter. Um, she had family connections with Rudyard Kipling, with J.M. Barry. There was a, a, a really charmed circle of intellectual life around her as she was growing up. And that's certainly 
how I knew her name and where my first interest in Thurkle came from. So I, I will speak honestly and say I had not read Thurkle's fiction before I began to investigate her biography. And so, so, so did you find yourself jumping into the novels then? Where did you, where did you start? What did you read? Um, I began with a novel called High Rising, which was really, I suppose, what might be described as a, a, a breakthrough novel. But I think the work that I most enjoyed, found most interesting, is the work a little later in her career um, that, that emerged during the Second World War. One that I thought was, was especially intriguing was Cheerfulness Breaks In, characteristic title, and of course reflecting a national aspiration in the Second World War when we all <laughs> did wish to be cheerful under difficult circumstances. Oh, indeed. And I mean, they're all, or, or mostly rather, set in um, Trollope's Barsetshire, aren't they? And so was it was it very much Trollope's land or did she reimagine it? Are the characters and concerns that she deals with in her novels Trollopian only of the 20th century? It's not Trollope's Barsetshire at all. It's a very, very different land. Um, she borrowed the term and she borrowed some of the names, some of the settings, um, and she wished, I think, to borrow some of Trollope's readers. And it's true that she is writing about provincial middle-class life and domestic plots. So um, to that extent... Um, Trollopian, but really the resemblance ends there. <clears throat> her values, her approach to fiction, um, the way in which she writes, the dialogue, it's very, very different from Trollope. She doesn't have Trollope's depth and reach, um, and I, I don't think she would have claimed to have had that. She was born in England in 1890, and she had, as you suggested, a, an enviable childhood for, uh, it sounds like it's enviable for its general coziness, um, you know, its lovingness, as well as for its its uh, interesting connections. As you say, she was very well connected. Was J M Barry was her godfather? Is yeah, that right? Yeah, she was very well connected um, in in those circles, literary, artistic, intellectual circles. Um, so, from that point of view, perhaps coziness isn't quite the right word because I think there was also a lot of intellectual nutrition, if, if you like, in, mm. in her childhood. She was um, um, fed on ideas, on books, on pictures. Burne Jones would draw for her. Um, so I think that the, there was a sense of largeness from that perspective mm. in her upbringing. But you're absolutely right. She was also supported by huge affection from the family. She was adored, and she says herself, and I'm sure this is true, um, she was spoilt rotten. She had her own way in everything. I think she's an interesting example of a phenomenon that I think is, is not common but can happen, a childhood that's almost too happy, too secure, mm. too sheltered, too golden, and I think it isn't just the nostalgic afterglow that made her see it in those terms. Nothing afterwards could remotely measure up to what she had experienced as a child um, and as a young woman in those years leading up to the First World War. And she encountered rough times after that in her own life. 
And I think that sense of, of a golden retrospect is one of the things that colours her fiction. I should say that her siblings didn't remember their early years in quite those terms, perhaps partly because of the presence of Angela, who I imagine would not have been an easy sister. Um, Dennis, her, her, her brother, I think, had quite a difficult time just, just establishing his own place in the family. I think Angela was quite a dominating presence. And her um, sister Claire, younger sister Claire, um, had lifelong health problems of, of a rather mysterious kind. Um, and I don't think either of, of, of those two siblings would have looked back on their childhood and seen it in quite the same way. In a sense, I mean, uh, the, the first marriage, there are two marriages, and the first of them seems quite surprising in light of all of that, the, the, you know, the extent to which she was supported by her family and was stimulated intellectually and perhaps held up on a pedestal almost, or certainly given a limelight in which she... she expressed herself fully the first marriage takes us in a completely different direction it's a completely different experience for her straight out of a Parisian finishing school she entered into this unlikely union yeah it was unlikely and and um, it's something she did quite quickly quite recklessly really Um, she fell headlong in love he was an older man 16 years older um, than she was when when they married. She was twenty one. Uh, he came from an entirely different social and economic background, Lancashire working class roots. But he was an extremely accomplished professional singer, and he did have, from all accounts, not just um, from Angela's point of view, he did have the most gorgeous voice. And music and the intoxication of music, something that she hadn't encountered in quite the same way that she had literature and art um, in her upbringing, though she she had heard music, she wasn't musically illiterate, but she hadn't, I think, encountered music of that quality before. And she, she was just blown away by him. He was a handsome man, I think sexually magnetic. Um, and, and she wasn't cautious. She had never seen any reason in her life. She hadn't been brought up to exercise caution, self-protection. And I think her parents were, perhaps with the wisdom of hindsight, perhaps a little um, naive um, or careless in not insisting perhaps on just a little bit more time. But they too were very, very impressed by Jim, as they called him, Jim McInnes. Um, And no one predicted, foresaw the problems um, that were on their way. Um, A profound shock. What were the problems? Well, he was bisexual. He was deeply devoted to his former partner with whom he'd been living, composer Graham Peel. And he was not in the least willing to give up that relationship um, when um, he was married to Angela. Um, So that was a problem. That is a problem. Yeah, that was a pretty (laughs) big problem, really. Um, But but also, um, and this is the problem that that, um, Thurkel talked about most often when she did discuss the marriage, he was an alcoholic and a violent alcoholic. 
So uh, those three things, the violence, the alcoholism, and the bisexuality in the presence of Graham, I mean, wasn't great, was it? And they were also, you know, as, as might have been expected, given the, um, his alcoholism, financial and practical problems. So she was really up against it. She tried very hard. She did try to make it work. And I think in the very early years, it wasn't so very unhappy. They managed, they coped, and she accepted Graham. The first child um, of the marriage um, was called Graham. But eventually, it was just impossible. The violence and the drinking were, were um, totally out of hand. Um, so she had to escape. But it's hard to imagine circumstances in which she would have found herself more exposed, more wretched, and more shamed, given the way in which she had been brought up. It, it really was deeply traumatic. And I think it took her a long time to get over that. And there may be a sense in which she never quite did get over it. That confidence, that first glad confident morning of her life was um, utterly, utterly vanished um, when she emerged from the marriage. And she had a baby girl. She had two sons and, and, and um, a, a younger daughter when she came through. And the girl died shortly after the end of the marriage, not as a consequence, uh, but it may be that she wasn't as strong as she might have been. Who knows? Um, but that certainly added to the trauma. So having had this, this glorious childhood, adolescent young womanhood, um, she then really did come up against some very hard and recalcitrant adult realities. And so, I mean, she emerges or escapes um, from this into the interwar period, really, and, and not long after, well, I, I suppose you, you say it takes a while for her to get over it, but not all that long after there is another marriage, which which is disastrous in a different way, although it did indirectly, I suppose, create the circumstances uh, for her to start writing professionally. I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm wondering whether these the disasters of, of her personal life, whether those find their way into the fiction or whether, whether she keeps those out and just concentrates on, on the lives of others. Those disasters don't really figure in any dramatic sense, but, but they do, I think, roll along under the surface. Um, Laura Morland, the, uh, I suppose, alter ego um, in the novels, the, the novelist in the novels, um, not altogether a reflection of Angela Thurkel, um, but, but Laura Morland's insistence um, that, that she is a woman on her own, She's, she is um, a writer, she's very devoted to her children, um, that her husband had been ineffectual, as I think the word that she uses in one of her novels. I mean, thinking about the second marriage to Thurkel, it did introduce her to a very different life in Australia, and maybe in some ways that's a wholesome thing. Um, and I don't think it, it, it was bitterly hostile. It's just that he wasn't up to the mark. He didn't earn enough money or indeed really any money at all. And that was a very black mark against his name. And they were kind of mild infidelities. But and reading um, Hall's 
very sympathetic, careful biography. You don't get the feeling that there was a whole series of blazing rows or confrontation, certainly and no sense there was any violence. She just decided she had enough of, of that um, and she came back to England. It feels, as you say, that the, the, the disasters and, and difficulties of her life were not necessarily reflected um, straight away in the fiction. I mean, it's even more than that, isn't it? That that um, that uh, that apparently, I'm speaking from a position of ignorance, I'm afraid, but that her books are very funny. They're very witty. They're frothy. That kind of thing. And that's how she had first made her mark as a writer. Um, her apprenticeship had been out in Australia, and this is one of the ways in which Australia um, was good for her. Um, she wrote you know, quite light-hearted pieces of journalism, again, autobiographical, various papers to earn money. Um, she needed the money. Um, and she discovered that she could write in a way that, that, that made people laugh. I, they're not, I won't say they're hilarious, and they're not funny in quite the inventive and creative ways that, that Woodhouse's fiction, say, um, is funny. But she is good, particularly in engaging with social occasions. She is good at highlighting the absurd and and highlighting um, the comedy in misunderstandings in in conversations and dialogue. I think this, to me, just sits quite strangely beside, um, there's a line that you quote from her second son, Colin, where he says that the whole of her writing years were those when she had ceased to love the world. Yes. Um, what do you think he meant by that? Um, he was a passionate writer and a very talented writer. And I think he was reacting, um, and with some cause, um, to what he perceived as the detachment um, in Thurkel's writing. They are autobiographical, but there's a sort of distance. I think speculating, but I do think that after the trauma of her first marriage, um, and it was a sustained trauma, um, and the death of her daughter, which which I think made a much deeper mark on her um, than she ever really publicly acknowledged. She coped with all that by, as it were, stepping back from a life which had lost that 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 golden charm of her childhood and adolescence. I think, I won't say she'd become cynical, don't think it's quite that, but she'd lost that confidence in life. And she watches other people who've also lost that confidence in life. But although I think Colin is not wrong in saying that she'd ceased to love the world, she had not given up on the world, nor its pleasures, nor its purpose, nor its responsibilities. And I do think that's true of her. She had a very strong sense that she had her work to do, um, certainly while she was bringing the boys up, um, but also um, in those, those novels of the Second World War, she had her work to do in communicating cheerfulness and, and giving people a sense of the work, particularly that, that women were doing on the home front, and the price that many of those women um, were paying. You know, there are lots of people who had experienced all sorts of awful things. And, and, and what you say about the idea of duty and the cheerfulness is that, that, of course, she didn't feel cheerful, but she was like, well, let's get on with it, which yeah. has a lot to be said for it. <laughs> well, it does. It does. And, and although I, I think that she had lost 
uh, that that love um, that, that that Colin talks about doesn't mean that her life would her own life was unremittingly grim. Um, she was quite determined to continue you know, her social life. She enjoyed friendship. She enjoyed the pleasures um, that that came her way. So I don't want to give the impression that that, that you know, her life was a kind of cycle of, of desolation. I, I don't think that's true. Well, um, then, Dinah, on a parting note with that in mind, where would you where would you recommend that the newcomer to Circle begin? I think I would recommend that that um, a Circle beginner should begin where I began, actually, on, with high rising. Try high rising and wild strawberries. Um, try cheerfulness breaks in as a sample of the Second World War writing. And if you do find that you like them, and that they see you through an evening away from Zoom, <laughs> then there's plenty more where that came from. Well, um, Dinah Birch, <laughs> that sounds like a perfect um, prescription <laughs> for our times. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. come on the show a utopian library that actually exists sort of and how the royal court in london a theater whose raison d'etre is to try new things has confronted the challenge of the pandemic and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode And another thing you might enjoy is Hay Festival, whose 34th spring edition is not far off. Hay's just revealed its free digital programme, set to bring writers and readers together for conversations, debates, workshops and performances online, from Wednesday, May 26th to Sunday, June the 6th. Over those 12 days, more than 300 acclaimed writers, global policymakers, historians, poets, pioneers and innovators, TLS contributors among them, of course, will be taking part launching the best new fiction and non-fiction and interrogating some of the biggest issues of the day. Register for free now at hayfestival.org forward slash Wales. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week, where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast, alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition, uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we find out what's been going on at London's Royal Court Theatre, we're going to talk about a recent development on the World Wide Web. And worldwideness is crucial in this story. Uh, Lucy, it seems to me we don't often hear positive stories about the internet. It's all data harvesting and sinister algorithms stealing our lives. Um, but you have a ray of light to share with us. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, a wonderful uh, sort of inventive way of looking at things uh, and I, I read about this in in lit hub because they often have you know um, pieces of of literary news in a piece by Walker Kaplan because um, the Clio awards which recognize innovation in design and things like that have awarded their great prize to the uncensored library which is a library that um, has books and articles that are censored in their country of origin and the library is built entirely in Minecraft because I didn't know. Uh, not being a Minecraft aficionado, that you can you can read books in Minecraft. The, 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 this is a project put together by Reporters Without Borders, isn't it? Yeah. It's an international non-profit, non-governmental group that fights for freedom of information. Yeah. And it's in collaboration with Media Monks and DDB Germany. Um, but I So Minecraft, mm, explain it as if to someone, me, who doesn't really get what Minecraft is because they still live in the 20th century. Well, I mean, I haven't actually played it. It's sort of... The, the, the easy way of thinking about it is digital Lego. It's the stuff that looks like digital Lego. You put blocks together and you can build things. And then, so then you can do whatever you want. You can build a palace or you can destroy a palace or you can go out and fight dragons. You could do, I mean, you can sort of do anything. Well, it, well, it was a game, you know, it was, a, it was a video game, especially for kids, I would say it was aimed at kids of 10 to 12 maybe, but actually all sorts of people use it, children younger than that, and then plenty of adults, I think. And the thing about Minecraft is that it's accessible all over the world. You do have to pay for it, so it's not it's not completely free. I think you pay a subscription or something. But you can't censor Minecraft in the way that you could censor, in the, in the governments, I think, can and do censor what's online within their domain, as it were. So what they've done is they've teamed up with this company and built 
uh, a library, you have to sort of go to it in a way that I don't quite understand. <laughs> you sort of virtually go to it and you go in and you can read a book. And so in Minecraft, so you could write books in Minecraft, but here you will you read the books which have been censored in their own country by people like um, Jamal Khashoggi um, and Javier Valdez, who I think is from Mexico. Yulia Berezovskaya, who I think is from Russia. So it's not it's not it's not just books; it's also articles um, and just all sorts of things that would normally be sent. So Adam Zagajewski, seeing as we were talking about him before, his work would no doubt have been would have been censored, and you would find it here. Oh, would it have been censored? Well, if it was, well, it then, was in in Poland, yeah. Then then maybe I don't know exactly how much is there. I think it's quite a recent thing. Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't know how far. So works back that are currently goes. censored at the moment. I think that's the. That's the plan. Right. And the idea is that anybody can go. And I think also Reporters Without Borders were thinking, well, how can we uh, get information to the next generation? If they can't see it online, mm-hmm. how do they know it exists? Um, yeah. And the answer is there are Minecraft. It's interesting because I was reading um, I was reading around this little bit and it, it follows on the heels of another Reporters Without Borders project with the same uh, aim. Uh, it was called the Uncensored Playlist. Have you read about this? Yeah, which is a brilliant so- <laughs> Such a great idea. So again, because Spotify and and music streaming platforms are not censored in 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 most countries, uh, or in fact in any countries, I, I'm not sure. But um, a way of getting around the censors was to pair writers and and thinkers who are censored with musicians all around the world, who would then translate their messages uh, into music, which would then be streamed via these uh, platforms. So this is a still active. Um, project but it's just it's as you say it's just so creative exactly the uncensored playlist that was then made available on um uh on on a given day and continues to to be streamable yeah it's just it's just really inventive thinking and using technology to do stuff that's difficult otherwise if not impossible exactly well um let's move on to an actual physical place now uh lucy albeit one that has had to keep its doors closed for more than a year now because of different pressures. Yes, different. Um, the pressure this time being the one we all know about. Um, one of the many professional areas directly affected by the pandemic is the theatre industry. And we all know that theatre is much more than an industry. Theatres around the world had to try and figure out what to do while they were closed. And the Royal Court in London, the Writers' Theatre and a home for new voices, launched what it called a living newspaper and produced editions of that newspaper throughout the year. Maria Margaronis, who would usually be reviewing new theatre for us, had a look back at what the Royal Court has been doing, and we're delighted that she's here to talk about it with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, so this is not the first um, the first iteration of a living newspaper, is it? Can you tell us about the first one? Yes. Well, the one that's generally understood to be the first one uh, was part of the Works Progress Administration. The Works Progress Administration, um, part of Roosevelt's New Deal, in America during the depression in the 1930s. And the WPA uh, was very committed to supporting the arts as well as infrastructure projects. And uh, there was a federal theater project run by Hallie Flanagan. And Hallie Flanagan had been on a Guggenheim to the Soviet Union and to Europe in the 20s and had immersed herself deeply in European theater and in the agitprop theater of the young Soviet Union. And she brought back lots of ideas, partly ideas about political theater and uh, bringing theater to audiences who'd never 
been to the theatre before, and partly the sort of experimental theatre of Brecht and the German theatre makers of the 20s. It was pretty radical stuff then in terms of technique and also maybe content. Uh, Yes, very much so, very much so. And uh, that radicalism occasionally actually came into conflict with the reformist politics of the New Deal. And in fact, the very first living newspaper that the Federal Theatre Project tried to put on um, was called Ethiopia. And it was about Ethiopian resistance to the Italian invasion. And it used uh, the words of Haile Selassie and Mussolini, and it had actors portraying them on stage. And a, 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 a Yukazi came down from Washington saying, no, no, you cannot portray living leaders on stage. Um, and that production actually never went ahead, even though part of the reason for it was that there was a troop of African drummers who were stranded in America, who were going to perform in this wonderful production. But um, some of the living, living newspapers productions in America took on themes like housing, uh, one third of a nation, because Roosevelt had talked about how one third of a nation live in terrible slum conditions. And that also had fantastic innovative set design so that it had objects that suggested slum housing dangling above the stage, you know, bits of broken pipe and that kind of thing. And uh, it was about, it was a piece of propaganda theater about the need for better housing. And then power was about the need for public provision of electricity. And it was partly in support of the New Deal's attempt, especially in the Tennessee, with the Tennessee Valley Authority to provide electricity to people rather than having private electric companies. So these plays uh, were put on around the country. That was a very important part of it. It was not just based in the great metropolitan centers uh, like New York, Los Angeles and Chicago, but it was addressed to audiences all over the country. Tickets were very cheap, 25 cents, 50 cents. Something like 30 million people saw Federal Theatre Project plays uh, over the four years of its existence. And there were something like 64,000 performances. And another innovative thing uh, about this project, which was, of course, intended to employ unemployed theatre workers, was that it paid the same wage to everyone. And some of the people who worked on it were very famous names indeed. Orson Welles was very involved. John Houseman was involved. Joseph Losey was involved. And they were all working for the same wage as unemployed set designers and and so on. So that really is radical. (laughs) Yeah. What what a brilliant idea to to bring the spirit or some of the spirit of that back now. Yes. um, Obviously, it's very, very different because uh, the theatres are closed or have been closed. They're about to open. And it's a very different experience watching something like this on your computer screen uh, than it would have been to be in a theatre with lots of people with that immediacy, that risk, that sense that anything can happen, you know, something can go wrong. The thing I've missed the most about going to live theatre is that sense of time unfolding for everyone together in the space where we all are. Um, and the sense that the actors on stage are at any moment risking themselves, really, uh, risking forgetting their lines, risking just uh, drying up. And it's really not the same to watch it uh, at home on your screen. The the first performances were also done as promenade theatre, so a few people were able to go into the building and walk around and watch the different performances taking place in the different spaces of the theatre. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to any of those. So what does this new one 
consist of? How did it work? You said there's, there was a front page and a, and a bar and things like that. All the spaces of the Royal Court were used for the productions. So each one opened with a live front page that you could watch on Zoom. So there was a little bit of a sense of watching with an audience. And that took place in the main theatre and it was a musical number. And actually the rap uh, that launched the final performance by kids between 14 and 21 um, called Lockdown Life FM, which is a rap by Testament, was just so crisp and beautifully done and energetic and these young voices, just with that rawness still in them, you know, that kind of rough edge, uh, was tremendously moving. They didn't all work as well as that one, but that one was, was great. So it would open with the front page and then subscribers would get uh, sent to their inbox through the week, different pieces, and each piece was kind of framed by a space in the theatre. So the bar became the space for a dating column, wittily called Royal Courting. <laughs> uh, there was a horoscope, uh, there was an agony aunt, um, there was something in the bookshop, something in the lift. So the th it kind of opened up the inside of the theatre too. Were there identifiable themes or issues uniting them or was each bit just sort of, okay, this is a, this is a playwright, we're giving a chance to talk about what they want to talk about each time? Kind of. Um, the last one, uh, the young people's one, was uh, about a little bit about the sort of ambivalence about opening up and the kind of anxiety we all feel about opening after this long lockdown. I think, you know, there was a sort of idea of a theme, but they were quite loose. Some of the sketches were very political and direct, and some of them were more poetic and personal and subjective. And that actually worked very well together because I think I was thinking about the British tradition of agitprop theatre. I was remembering that wonderful Scottish company, the 784 company, which did plays like The Chief at the Stag and the Black Black Oil, which was more um, sort of public in your face agitprop theatre. And there's something about that that, first of all, I think wouldn't work so well online and that secondly doesn't quite cut through in the way that it used to. Satire is a sharper tool now. So uh, the mixture of the political and the personal in, in the living newspaper was, was very effective because it, especially since we're, we've all been isolated and alone a lot of the time in these last months and it it connected that public world with the private world we've all been living in. Yes so, so the idea of, of kind of being on your own but still there are things happening in the outside world which are being dealt with. Um, what what were the outstanding ones for you? There was an incredible um, horoscope. You don't hear that very often on the TLS podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really an amazing performance. It was written and performed by Tim Crouch, and he was dressed as Jake and Jelly. The, you know, remember that horned shaman from the uh, failed insurrection? Yes, fairly unforgettable. Yeah, with the look. bare chest and the, the 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 whole the whole bit and the tattoos. And so, uh, Tim Crouch um, is clearly dressed as this man. There's a, uh, there are photographs of Trump and of uh, Mount Rushmore actually with Trump in it in the background. And it is a blistering attack on every star sign you can think of. Um, snarky, mean, and absolutely mesmerizing. So it's the sort of seduction of being abused that you really, really feel. Except of course for uh, Gemini, which he points out is the star sign of Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, and the late Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. I, I won't swear on the TLS podcast. I think that would be inappropriate. But, um, 
uh, after swearing uh, vigorously, um, he, uh, you know, attacking Gemini, he goes, you know, are you proud, Gemini? Does the knowledge give you carte blanche to trample over good people, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And he goes, does it, Gemini? And then he goes, yes, it does, because you're special. <laughs> so that was that was a brilliant one. Um, of the kids' ones, I particularly liked a lovely, lovely melancholy piece written by Naomi Lundy-Smith and performed by Jemima Mayala, which is a monologue by a black girl on the Victoria line heading for Walthamstow Central. And it's the end of the summer holidays and she doesn't want to go back to the school where she's got a scholarship and where you get the sense she's one of the very, very few black students. And it's about why that's so difficult and why she wants to stay with her summer friends. And it's got, it's got that, it's got a very poignant sense of London in the summer and that, that kind of the summer holidays in the city and being with your friends and not wanting to go back to that pressurized world, which also has a sort of resonance with the slight melancholy of coming out of lockdown and having to go back to normal life. What, what do you think, um, while the theatres were closed, what do you think the living newspaper offered? I mean, apart from, this is a practical but very important point, apart from employment, for a lot of people who would otherwise have been without employment, presumably. Absolutely, it offered work to, I think, more than 60 writers and 200 other theatre people who would otherwise have been unemployed. I think it kept something alive. It kept reminding us about theatre, about how important that is. It made a made a, a subliminal, but, very, but equally important point about how we need theatre to be properly funded. I mean, this was partly funded by the Arts Council, so it was partly publicly funded, but it was also funded by the subscribers to the newspaper. And I mean, Hallie Flanagan uh, believed very much that you can't have democracy without theatre. And she begins her memoir, Arena, uh, by talking about ancient Greek theatre and how that was uh, the plays that were put on uh, were very much related directly to the time and place of their performance. So that, for instance, Trojan Women, although it's set in Troy, was written at the same time that the Athenians had attacked the island of Milos and enslaved the population. So those plays were designed to make people think about now and the political world that they were living in. So I think that what the Living Newspaper did was to reconnect uh, the theatre to now in a way that was perhaps even more immediate than you get in productions that have been long rehearsed and, and put on because each one was written rapidly before it was, it was written that week and put on. And it, sometimes the actors still had their scripts in hand. So, uh, you know, there was a brilliant rap about uh, the uh, much disputed report on, um, on race in the UK that came out uh, recently, uh, which you know was an immediate reaction. So that was very important. You mentioned a piece from, I think it's from edition six by the performance artist Nando Messias. Even just your description of it's very moving, but it seems particularly uh, pertinent when we're thinking about this relationship between theatre and the public um, and the precariousness of that, not only pandemic wise, but in, as you say, a society that's just learned that the government plans to make huge cuts to the funding of, of, of art degrees. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that, that particular uh, contribution. 
Yes, I mean, that piece actually made me cry and it was the thing that made me think I really want to write about this because, you know, I hadn't been sure before I saw that one. Um, Nando Messias is, uh, or Messias, I don't know how they pronounce it, um, is just a startling performer. Um, they're very tall, uh, with long dark hair, an amazing dancer. They're in another piece, actually, the, um, uh, they're uh, in the um, front page from that same edition. And this extraordinary face, which is both masculine, beautiful, and very vulnerable. And they're sitting on the steps in front of the theater in a long black strapless evening gown with a powdered blue feather boa around their shoulders and long red uh, satin, satin evening gloves. And it's, the whole thing is a kind of double entendre because they are holding up messages written as if to a lover who has left them, saying things like, I don't know who I am without you, think I still love you, do you want to smell me and see me and be in me? And gradually you realize that Nando is a personification of the theater itself. And that combination of the vulnerability, the sense of someone performing themselves so that they are performing this, this gender-free androgynous figure who could be anything or anyone, just reminded me of that raw emotional immediacy that you can get in the best theatre. And here's a place where the fact that it's on the screen adds something very powerful because of the close-up on the face and on the body. Um, and at the end, um, they turn around and walk into the theatre as, as the house is open and you go, okay, we're going to go back. We're going to go back. So that's the, that's the invitation as it were. Um, finally, I was going to ask um, if, if you think, well, I suppose inevitably the landscape will have changed when the theatres reopen and if there's anything in particular you're looking forward to. Um, yes, there is. Um, there's a play, a new play by Amy Berryman uh, called Walden, opening at the Harold Pinter Theatre with Gemma Arterton. And even though it's a first play by a new playwright, um, there is coming up actually next year a production, a dramatization of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, I think at the Gilgood Theatre. And there's a He's based on the life of Nina Simone called Black is the Colour of My Voice. There's lots for us to look forward to. I think there will be there will be recapping, won't there, of things that, that would have gone ahead. And then also and then also, as you say, some new work which will maybe take something, do you think? Do you think that it might be able to take something from projects like the Living Newspaper? Well, I hope so. I mean, the other thing that this project made me think about is actually what a missed opportunity there's been, because there could have been a lot more theatre in open spaces. And maybe uh, that will, there's no reason why that can't happen uh, even after the pandemic, but that sense of, that sense of a sort of social theatre of, of, or of a theatre that's responsive to current events or uh, something more like a living newspaper. I mean, there's no reason that that only has to happen online during the pandemic, it could be something that continues and that could travel around the country, for example, just like 
the Federal Theatre Project's Living Newspaper did. I realised I, I missed that. I actually found myself looking up some of the old agitprop theatre online. And I mean, this the Royal Court's version was not exactly agitprop. It was subtler and more nuanced than, than that suggests. But that sense of urgent theatre responsive to now, because God knows there's a lot to respond to. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of now, then there's a, a lot of it to respond to. Okay, well, you heard it here first. If you want to um, take an agitprop um, theatre production around the country, let's remember it was Maria's <laughs> idea. Um, <laughs> Maria, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Dinah Birch and Maria Margaronis thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.